If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Episode 225 of the Read to Lead podcast is brought to you in part by Self-Publishing School. For more information on how you can self-publish your book in as little as 90 days and get a free copy of Chandler Bolt's book published, visit readtoleadpodcast.com slash published. news is the skills that you use to get to one level are usually entirely different than the skills and traits as a leader that you might need to get to the next level. Welcome to the Read to Lead podcast. And as we enter year six, this is still the podcast dedicated to your personal and professional growth. Hi, I'm Jeff Brown. And as you may know, I believe that if you desire to achieve true success in business and in life, that intentional and consistent reading is a must. The Read to Lead podcast is going to help you narrow this important reading list and also help bring you some of the key insights and main ideas from today's most successful and inspiring authors. Today's guest is a gentleman by the name of John Hillen, and he's the co-author, along with Mark Nevins, of the book What Happens Now? Reinvent Yourself as a Leader Before Your Business Outruns You. I plan to ask John to share about what it means to be a sophisticated leader and how to become one, some of the more common career stalls most leaders are going to face, how to tell when you're in the midst of a stall, and much, much more. If there's one thing I can be certain of when it comes to you, it's that you love books. My guess is you love free ones even more. And you can get a copy absolutely free of my friend Chandler Bolt's book published when you sign up for his free training. To do that, you just go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash published. Now, in this free training, Chandler shows you the exact process to follow to go from blank page, I've stared at a few of those myself, to published author in as little as 90 days and the exact book launch blueprint to follow to launch your book so that you're earning monthly royalties month after month. Again, to sign up for Chandler's free training and get a free copy of his book published, simply visit readtoleadpodcast.com slash published. Now, this offer is only going to be available for a short while longer, so don't wait. Again, it's readtoleadpodcast.com slash published. John Hillen is a leadership and strategy professor in the School of Business at George Mason University. He's also a consultant and a director for many companies. His views on leadership draw from his experience as a public and private company CEO of several companies, also a board chair and director, a U.S. Assistant Secretary of State under President George W. Bush, and a former U.S. Army officer and decorated combat leader. He writes regularly on leadership and strategy, both of which he teaches in George Mason's MBA program and was recently recognized as one of the 100 most influential business leaders in the Washington, D.C. area. His brand new book, co-written with Mark Nevins, is called What Happens Now? Reinvent Yourself as a Leader Before Your Business Outruns You. Now, at one point, I was attempting to uh, adjust my schedule so I could have both authors on, and, and that didn't work out, and John drew the short straw. So <laughs> thank you for being here, John. 
Hey, my pleasure, Jeff. Well, uh, the, the book's premise uh, suggests that, that we as leaders, uh, we need to constantly be reinventing ourselves in order to become what John calls sophisticated leaders. So, John, what exactly, let's start with that. What exactly is a sophisticated leader in, in, in your view? Yeah, well, a sophisticated leader, which in our book, uh, Mark and I say this is what a leader should try to attain as they move up in the scale of their of their leadership challenges, is someone who's uh, ironically a little bit more detached from the organization. They're working on the organization, not in the organization per mm. se. A sophisticated leader tends to be more inclusive and dialogic. They tend to rely more on their strategic and interpersonal political skills rather than their business skills and acumen. They tend to not have as much expertise in the actual business that they're running. Mm. Um, they tend to give less direction, not more. They tend to uh, build an ability to persuade and influence rather than try to control things. And so it, it's a bit of a uh, paradoxical mix of combinations. Um, we encourage leaders, if they want to succeed at the highest levels, when the leadership challenges under their scope are really complex and sophisticated, they need to pull back and elevate themselves, achieve through others, and have a kind of detachment from what they're doing. And yet at the same time, they're rigorously decisive. They're ruthless in the application of their own energy and leadership. They're not wishy-washy. So it's a curious combination of attributes that the sophisticated leader tends to have. And the first chapter right away draws out the differences between challenges of sophistication and, and, and ones of, of complexity. So, so how does someone in a leadership position, John, best determine what type of capabilities or solutions Solutions are needed in, in, in a given scenario. Well, you know, the, the first thing we ask our readers to do is to understand what kind of game they're in. The setting for our book is, is different than most leadership books. Most leadership books are almost like, you know, they come on an accident scene and they're like, <laughs> OK, what happened here? How do we fix this? Let's walk this back. Let's move forward. Our leadership book, the setting is success. You've been enormously successful as a leader. Mm. You put together these business plans. You raised capital. Uh, you moved your nonprofit forward. Your government agency has a whole new set of missions, whatever the leadership setting is, and you've succeeded. Congratulations. Oh, oh no. What happens now? You know, so this is sort of like the end of the victory party when you're starting to realize <laughs> what the next day is going to be and perhaps how hungover you're going to be. Um, but, you know, it's a different world. And the different world brings all these different challenges for leaders who successfully brought their organization to the next level. And uh, the key that we say in the book is to understand which kind of challenges in front of you due to your success are challenges of complexity or which ones are challenges of sophistication. Challenges of complexity tend to be more of the same things you've, you're used to, more customers, more supply chain, more vendors, more payroll, more employees, more locations. Challenges of sophistication tend to be not differences in scale, but differences in kind. Totally different kind of customers, totally different kind of partners, totally different kind of uh, value chain in which I'm now operating. And the, it turns out the two things require a very different application of leadership skills from the people that lead these institutions. Uh, would you say that leaders in this in this position of being sort of, shall we say, outrun by their business, to, 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 to use the subtitle of your book, mm. is, is this much more common now? I mean, I see things like the Internet disrupting so many industries, and it would seem that so many more leaders are dealing with this now than ever before. Is that is that safe to say? It's very safe to say. And, and you know, the good news of this is people are being successful. 
Mm. Capital's being raised. Enterprises are getting off the ground. They're finding early success. The hard news is, is that, um, you know, as, as Marshall Goldsmith told us, who who wrote one of the um, you know blurbs for our book because he really liked the way we built on his original thesis, is uh, the skills that you use to get to one level are usually entirely different than the skills and traits as a leader that you might need to get to the next level. So we're all victims of our own success and the many disruptive forces in a successful technologically driven economy that we have now are accelerating all these success stories and therefore accelerating the leadership challenges and the leadership stalls that accompany that. Mm. Well, uh, John and Mark continue then on in the book to lay out the seven common career stalls that they've identified that most leaders are going to face at some point uh, and, and dedicate a chapter to each one of these. John, in, in your experience, when do most leaders stall out and, and, and what are some of the more common reasons as, as to why? The, the overall reason we found that leaders stall in general is because they confuse the uh, challenges in front of them and the application of leadership tools to those challenges. And um, you know, this goes back to, are you facing challenges of complexity? <laughs> Mm-hmm. Are you facing challenges of sophistication? If they're challenges of complexity, we have equipped the management and leadership world with a wonderful array of tools to address that. We have all these great management trends, you know, total quality management, lean manufacturing, Six Sigma, business process reengineering. We have consultants. We have big data, data analytics, artificial intelligence, all these things that will crunch numbers, uh, give you uh, new processes, new organizations, new reports, new kinds of meetings, new kinds of data, all that. So um, we have a lot of tools to restructure, to engineer, to muscle our way through problems of complexity. Mm. Problems of sophistication tend to require not only the organization to change, but the leader to actually change to the point, given our title, to almost reinvent themselves Mm. and behave totally differently. They have to adopt new mindsets Uh, new behaviors, new capabilities, new practical frameworks for getting things done. And stalls happen, and we have seven different kind of stalls that we've outlined leaders going through in the book with a lot of examples, but stalls in general tend to happen to a leader at any point in their career if they confuse these two things, if they try to engineer their way Mm. through a sophistication challenge when in fact what was required was not more data analytics, but what, what was required was a complete change in behavior and mindset from the leader. I think of, of my brother who's a CTO at a publicly traded company that's just recently been purchased by a competitor. And, and to say that those two companies are going through change and transitions would be mm. an, an understatement. How, how do you advise we engage our team from the beginning, John, so, so they actually welcome new initiatives and, and, and understand them. Yeah, well, change management, which my co-author Mark Nevins is a, is a real expert on, and we talk about is one of the stalls, the ability to lead change. Mm. The bottom line for what we recommend anybody having to lead in an environment of change or transition is you have to become the chief explaining officer <laughs> of your organization. Mm. Uh, and that's what we say CEO stands for when you're leading change. Mm. And the reason is, is because one of the key skills is explaining on your audience's terms, not your terms, the reasons for the change, the nature of the change, your empathy about the disruption that this will cause in their lives, the tremendously better world for them on their terms, 
that will come into being as a result of this change, their role on their terms in helping lead it, and so on. And so um, I myself learned this as a public company CEO when I was integrating acquisitions mm. that we had done. And, and I went to this tremendously intelligent set of employees at a company. I mean, these are people with you know advanced degrees in crypto mathematics, I mean, real bright people. And I explained to them for about the 12th time what we were trying to do with pulling these two companies together. And I had a room full of blank stares. They were absolutely not buying what I was selling. Mm. And, I, and I'm a pretty decent communicator. And uh, I went back in frustration in my office, you know, slammed my folder down. And one of my colleagues said, how'd it go? I said, well, they, they don't get it. <laughs> and he said, well, you know, maybe you're the problem. Maybe it's not them. <laughs> and then I realized I had to take a hard look at myself. And I realized that uh, I was explaining the incredible virtues and benefits of this change on terms that were exciting to me. Mm. Um, but they didn't mean much to them. And so I had to take time to go back and listen and understand their, what was in their hearts as well as their minds and then how to express uh, the benefits of change in their terms. And then I had to get them to be able to express it in their own voice because all leaders achieve through others. You know, another key to change management is the entire team needs to be able to regularly richly and continuously articulate the reason, the beneficial reasons for the change in their voice and on their terms. Authenticity, uh, John, in leadership is, is a word that gets thrown around quite a, quite a lot, and some might say even overused. Uh, why, in, in your view, is authentic leadership so, so important today? Well, it's, it's really important for leaders to um, be genuine. We have an episode, a historic episode we talk about in the book where um, which we we take a we take from an old movie called The Crossing in which uh, mm. Jeff Daniels plays George Washington right before the crossing of the Delaware and uh, you know at the time George Washington was sort of 0 and 6 as a battlefield commander <laughs> it was it was really bad at his job and the army was downtrodden and uh, they lost all the major cities and the revolution just looked to be in really bad shape and a terrifically talented general British general fighting for the Americans at the time named Horatio Gates challenges Washington in front of the men, in front of the officers, and says, look, you're really bad at your job, George. Uh, I'm really good. I'm a perennial all-star. I'm 37 and 0. You just need to step aside. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this thing over. You know, we might surrender. That might be the most sensible thing. I, I really don't know. But anyway, you're, you're, you're done because you're technically and tactically re really bad at what you do. <laughs> and uh, Washington uh, gives an argument back, and Jeff Daniels is superb in the role. And he ends with saying, and you know, if I, a bumbling Virginia farmer, decide to lead these men into hell, they will follow me. And he made a very persuasive case for why the army would follow him and not this terrifically talented, mm. successful other general. And it really came down to what did Washington have? I, and I, you know, I asked my students in my leadership class or people I work with, why follow the battlefield loser when he's bad at his job? Mm. And what he had is he had the ability to earn the trust of his subordinates. And his trust did not stem from his technical and tactical competency. It stemmed from his character as, as a leader and his genuineness and authenticity in being who he was, caring deeply about his people and the mission. And he was able to earn their trust besides a poor business track record, <laughs> let's, let's say. And so, uh, you know, it's very important. People don't like phonies in any walk of life. Even phonies don't like other phonies. Living a leadership life in your own voice while at the same time as Mark and I encourage people in the book to reinvent themselves and constantly layer on new attributes, new skills, new roles, and new mindsets turns out to be a challenge, but also maybe the key 
to having an enduring, sustainable, successful leadership career, staying authentic, and yet at the same time, changing, growing, being a lifetime student of self-discovery. Have you by chance, uh, a little side note here, have you by chance read uh, His Excellency George Washington by Joseph J. Ellis? Uh, no, you know, I actually have a bunch of Ellis books on my stack, yeah. my ever-growing stack of, to read, but I will definitely, definitely look at that. That's one of, one of my favorites, for sure. Okay. Well, I've been fortunate to work for some, some awesome leaders myself over the years, uh, and my favorites, John, were the ones who placed a priority on developing me and the other leaders uh, around them. Uh, why do you feel that creating a, a culture of leadership is so important to your own personal career? Oh, gosh, yeah. It's 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 the most, if I can use a sort of financial term, or I'll use a term in a financial sense, it's the most leverage mm. that a leader can gain in running their organization. Uh, in the same way, financial engineers use leverage to cheaply grow enterprises. Leverage for leaders is in developing other leaders. It's not a surprise. It's the definition of the word, in fact, that leaders are, are meant to achieve through others. Mm. The, the only thing that every enterprise in the world has in common, whether it's IBM or a three-person volunteer church choir, <laughs> is that they are enterprises that are full of people working together trying to accomplish something. And leaders need to lead that. If nobody's following, you're not leading anything. And so as organizations get bigger and more complex, the personal ability, the very personal ability, not outsourcing it to consultants or mm. HR or anything else, but the personal ability of leaders to frame and own a culture of developing other leaders turns out to be the single best way they can spend their time. It's the most profitable way they can invest their time. It's the singular skill that can probably guarantee the continued scale, successful scaling upwards of their enterprise. We profile several leaders in the book who at one point due to the challenges in front of them and the opportunities in front of them, ended up shifting almost 50% of their time to just mentoring, coaching, evaluating, and developing other leaders. And some people eschew the role. Some leaders eschew the role because they have a particular expertise in their business they're unwilling to give up. They feel uncomfortable with leadership development. They think that's a role for HR or somebody else. When you show them essentially the data that it's the most profitable investment of their time and energy, you get a lot of people convinced. I like that word, uh, leverage. I think it was Liz Weissman I was talking to, author of Multipliers, How the Best Leaders Make Everyone Smarter, who used the phrase leveraging the collective brain power of the room and, and how multiplier type leaders are able to do that. Yeah, that's right. You know, in the in the military in which I served for a dozen years, uh, we have an expression. It's called a force multiplier. Mm. And these are small capabilities that give you outsized results and therefore multiplying the impact of your of your force. And uh, leadership development is the ultimate force multiplier in, a, in an organization. Mm. Well, uh, John Startups would seem to be sort of a, a classic case study for, for stalled leadership with the fits and starts and growth and stagnation. Uh, you see it all the time. How, how do you suggest startup leaders adapt to, to growth in their people and, and market share and, and profit? Yeah, it's really hard for startups. And, you know, um, we don't cover too much about founders or founder syndrome because that's been well covered by, by many people. But we certainly see that phenomenon. Hmm. I think the interesting thing about uh, our book, in, in, the, in fact, in the forward to our book written by Norm Augustine, the former chairman and CEO of Lockheed Martin, he writes that this is a book about not how to become a leader, but this is a book about how to remain a leader. I love that. And so what we've found out 
in our research, and we profile about 40 different executives from all different walks of life, very diverse set of leaders in there, is um, the founder syndrome, the startup CEO who can't grow to the next level along with his enterprise and needs to be replaced by a professional manager, whatever the circumstances, that happens regularly and continuously in every organization throughout mm-hmm. your career. And so that never stops. So if you want to stay ahead of your organization, you got to constantly reinvent yourself. Startup leaders put so much energy and sweat equity and mm-hmm. blood equity into their businesses that they often really, really struggle with this theme in the book of pulling back and elevating and and developing others in order to turn over to others their old role so that the startup leader can do a new role. I tell people, and Mark does as well in his work with companies that we do, are you guys all, do you guys all feel hostage to your email? Do you feel like you're only putting out fires? You know, we ask, you know, and of course, 100% of executives all say they believe that that's their life, <laughs> right? They can't figure out a way to spend their own time and energy. They feel like um, all they're doing is putting out fires and all the rest. And I say, well, how about this? Would you like freedom? Oh, yeah, we want freedom. We want freedom. Well, freedom comes from essentially two things that we spend a chapter each on in the book. One is really leading and developing your team so that they're not just a working group piling up individual results that you then add up the scores at the end like a swim team or a track team, but it's an actual team team, you know, more like a water polo or a basketball team where everybody's moves every minute of the game affect everybody else's, but you get an outsized result that's bigger than the sum of the parts. That's one way to freedom. The other way to freedom is developing others. So you can run the, the company you're not, but you've developed others to run the company you are. And startup leaders sometimes struggle with recognizing that the leader to lead that company that they are not yet is a totally different kind of leader. And if they want to be that leader, they need to reinvent themselves completely and give up some of the things that drove them with passion into their startup. Hmm. Well, John, as we begin to sort of uh, wind up our time together, I do have a couple of questions that I want to ask you, not directly related to the book, if I may. But before I do that, anything else from the book you want to make sure that we walk away with? Well, you know, the the seven stalls that we profile in the book have turned out to be very evocative for audiences hmm. and the audiences we've been talking to, and we do workshops and talks and all kinds of things around these things. Um, almost everybody relates particularly uh, emotionally. They connect immediately emotionally to one stall or another because they, they tend to be in it. They tend to be in it. We have a, a stall in purpose, a stall leading your team, a stall in managing your stakeholders resonates with a lot of senior leaders, a stall in the source of your authority. Why should anybody follow you? Well, that changes over time, the source of your authority. And then a couple of other things we talked about, a stall and how to spend your time and energy and leadership development. After speaking with so many audiences about it and many more uh, uh, online about these stalls, is one of the things we emphasize is everybody should stall. It doesn't make you a bad person. It actually means you're being successful. And it has nothing to do with your leadership style or personality. No one personality or another is more susceptible to one stall or another. You tend to stall because the circumstances changed. And the irony is you successfully caused the circumstances to change. You are the the uh, the cause of your own demise, so to speak, uh, and it's not a demise because it's just a stall, and and people should embrace it, and and it doesn't mean anything's wrong with you, and and to further that point, for every single one of the stalls, we have warning signs and test, and then and then very practical frameworks, as you probably saw in order to work your way out of it. So it doesn't mean you're a bad person. If you stall, you should expect it. You should embrace it because it's actually a journey to growth. And then there, and there's ways to sort of avoid them and, and work out of them too. 
Hmm. Well, if you hadn't already figured this out, um, I'm someone who likes to read. And one question I like to ask every guest is to think about the books that you've read over the years, maybe to make it easier, maybe the last few years. Uh, what would you say are the two or three that, that stick out that immediately come to mind as, as having had maybe the biggest impact on you? And, and why did they impact you as they did? Oh, gosh. You know, we, Mark and I, tend not to read a huge amount of business leadership books, mm-hmm. which is ironic given that we wrote one. <laughs> uh, and in fact, in one of the stalls, a stall in authority, we lay out a per- professional development plan for leaders to get gravitas mm-hmm. and range and wisdom, which we often hear. I'm, I'm a corporate director on, on five different companies. And as a director, I often hear, well, you know, yeah, she's coming along, but I'm not sure she's got boardroom presence or, you know, I'm not sure she's got the gravitas to take on this role and things like that. And mm-hmm. I always say, well, why don't we send them to the gravitas store? <laughs> right? They can buy a little there. So where do you get this? And um, among the things we encourage when we lay out this professional development path for leaders going to the highest level is to develop their range as thinkers mm-hmm. and, uh, and their wisdom, not their smarts, not their business acumen, but their smarts about the nature of the human condition. And we wrote a piece about Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook's challenges, mm. which Zuckerberg characterized in front of the Senate as challenges of philosophy. So we said, who's the chief philosophy officer at Facebook? So be- because of, and Mark and I moderate together executive seminars at the Aspen Institute, where we have CEOs read Aristotle, Martin Luther King, Virginia Woolf, mm. um, you know, Thomas Hobbes, and and all these great thinkers throughout the ages. Because it turns out if you're in the leadership game, you are essentially doing a variation of what the great thinkers and leaders of society have done across time. You're trying to figure out what is a good and just society that you're leading. Mm. So for that reason, we tend to recommend what I'll call bigger context books, mm. including fiction. Um, and we put some postings up on LinkedIn about this recently, including fiction books that just really plug you into the, the nature of the human condition and the nature of human character. So that's important. We always recommend fiction. We always recommend big books. I'll just give you an example from a nonfiction book. Walter Isaacson, who wrote the cover blurb for our book, mm-hmm. is this terrific biography out of Leonardo da Vinci. You can learn a lot from biographies. Walter Isaacson has written biographies on Steve Jobs, Ben Franklin, Leonardo da Vinci, among others. And those are three pretty interesting people. <laughs> uh, and there's probably a lot to learn from that. So I think it's great. For business books, I love my friend Stan McChrystal's book, Team of Teams. Mm. Uh, I was with General McChrystal uh, a couple of times in government service and including, you know, in Iraq in 2006 when, um, when he had a real challenge there. And his book, Team of Teams, is a terrific book for any leader. So I'm a big fan of that. And it's mm. a very unique voice. My my general problem with business leadership books is there's often nothing in there your mother didn't tell you. <laughs> uh, and uh, so I look for books where there's something in there. Maybe despite you know, my mom's incredible shrewdness and canniness and intelligence, uh, maybe something she didn't tell me. So that's very good. For, for younger leaders in small organizations, I love um, Ben Horowitz's book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. Mm. I think it's a very practical book. I mean, it's got a chapter on how to fire people with something new leaders really struggle with mm-hmm. and how to do it uh, you know, with humanity and, and purpose. So I think that's also good. Peter Thiel's book, Zero to One, I think is a terrific book about sort of business philosophy, not so much about how to run things. So I, I tend to look for and recommend books that are a little bit different, that stretch your mind a little bit, and yet at the same time can still be of 
you know, practical, practical use to, to real leaders. Yeah, I've read Isaacson's uh, biographies on Jobs and Franklin, but I have not read the Da Vinci one yet. So that's, that's going to be next on, on my list for sure. Yeah, it's tremendous. Well, I haven't had a chance to, to see you speak in person, but I, I did find a couple of YouTube videos uh, to watch and, and, and enjoyed. And as a successful speaker, what are, what are some tips for delivering an impactful and memorable public talk? Okay, so I would say, first of all, you know, ask your audience what works for them. Mm. Um, I, you know, I have a couple of things I do when I speak, but the most important part of deciding how I'm going to do it is a conversation I have with the people at the audience. And mm. I usually start with what makes for a successful speech to your audience such that people walk out saying, wow, that that was really good. So what does good mean? T- tell me what good is on your terms. Mm. So I, I think it's the most important thing is really understand what the audience don't assume anything. Um, you know, the, the second tip I got when I was working with my speakers bureau, I went in and gave a, uh, a pitch to the speakers bureau sales team, you know, so they could inform their clients about what I was talking about most recently. And um, I thought it was terrific. I thought I just knocked the ball <laughs> out of the park. I mean, I was arranging parades for myself outside <laughs> and, uh, and, it was, and I totally bombed in their eyes. Mm. Um, because I, and perhaps it was a, a, a matter of, you know, teaching in an MBA program for a number of years, but I, to them, I gave a kind of lecture. There was a lot of great information. The content was sparkling, but there was no emotional connection mm. with the audience. And so, you know, I had to completely redo it and, and go back and work with them because if you're doing a speaking engagement and you want it to be, as, as you said, impactful and memorable, mm. you really have to emotionally connect with the audience uh, the irony of this for me is in our book, we talk about the importance of storytelling and the narrative arc of defining purpose in organizations and the importance for leaders to be able to articulate that over and over again. It turns out we learn through stories, we human beings. And stories with very practical foundations that emotionally connect with the audience as opposed to reams of data and research findings and so on uh, are usually the best way to connect with an audience and have an impact. And uh, similar to you know a theme in the book, uh, um, Back Away and Elevate, I think a good theme for public speakers is uh, less is more. Mm. Less is more sometimes when you're talking, just just find a way to frame the less, so to speak, mm. in evocative terms that emotionally connect with the audience. Well, with the book just having come out a couple of months ago, I, I know that you uh, and your team may still be in mostly book promotion mode, but if you're willing to share, I'd be curious to know what you're uh, working on on into the future that you're particularly excited about. Sure. Mark and I, Mark's a, you know, a Fortune 100 executive coach, very much in demand, one of the best organizational development people in America. You know, And I've had a career as a, a practicing CEO, public and private, among other things. So we have a kind of neat combination in thinking through business issues as, uh, you know, with as different kind of backgrounds. And so uh, we've designed uh, you know, a whole set of workshops and other practical applications of the book framework around it. So that's out there in front of us. And uh, there's no end to demand in general for people to learn and grow as teams of executives or as individual executives. That That's something we look forward to doing with a lot of different uh, people, probably probably around the world, even, even a bunch of international applications. For my part, I also teach strategy in the MBA program at the business school at George Mason University. I'm going to write a strategy book because academic strategists, God bless them, even the, even the best ones, Michael Porter and others, have made strategy so impossibly complicated 
then almost nobody can use it in real life. <laughs> so uh, there's a couple people, Roger Martin, Michael Porter, some great strategy thinkers, um, and a bunch of others that, that I'm just going to do a disservice by not mentioning, that have boiled it down a little bit, but I still think it needs mass simplification without taking away any of its profundity to be useful by most people seeking to do strategy in the real world. The former Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes once said, I wouldn't give a fig about simplicity on this side of complexity, but I give my life to understand simplicity on the other side of complexity. (laughs) And so I think that's the kind of simplicity good leaders and good authors need to get to, which is to understand everything that's going on, but then make it accessible, simple, and interesting for audiences who are going to actually use it. Mm, Fascinating. Um, The book, again, is called What Happens Now? Reinvent Yourself as a Leader Before Your Business Outruns You. John Hillen, co-written with Mark Nevins. John, it was a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much for taking time out to be here and and sharing your insights. My pleasure, Jeff. I really appreciate it. When you visit the Read to Lead podcast website, you'll find a summary there of each episode. Today's summary, today's episode summary is at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 225. I've got links to resources, the books John recommended, and other items of importance to you there. Again, that's readtoleadpodcast.com slash 225 for episode 225. And remember, if you've got a book in you just dying to get out, you can sign up for that free training from Chandler Bolt on how to self-publish your book in as little as 90 days. And when you sign up for that free training, whether you attend it or not, he sends you a free copy of his book, Published. Just visit readtoleadpodcast.com slash published for more on that. If you have any comments or suggestions or feedback on what I'm doing here at Read to Lead, you can email me directly. That's jeff at readtoleadpodcast.com. Well, that does it for this week. I look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Hurry into Ram Power Days and experience the raw power of the Ram 3500 with available best-in-class torque and towing among 350-3500 pickups when properly equipped. Strap yourself in for one powerful ride in the Ram TRX with the most horsepower of any gas pickup ever built. Or the Ram 1500, awarded number one in driver appeal among light-duty pickups by J.D. Power three years in a row. Hurry into Ram Power Days going on now. For J.D. Power 2022 U.S. award information, visit jdpower.com awards.